The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world. Today, from the edge of Sydney Harbour in Australia, where I'm here for a few days to visit some clients, Australia's got a very robust startup scene, but the major issue is lack of angel or venture capital. But there's plenty of great things happening, just difficult to pay for them. So why do over 95% of startups fail? The success stories are huge. We all know about the enormous success enjoyed by you know, Airbnb and Dropbox and Snapchat and Palantir Technologies and Jing Dong and Facebook and Twitter and Uber. There's a whole heap of them, but less than 5% of startups are successful. Now, a detailed review of over 2,000 startups financed with venture capital reveals that more than 95% of these fail to see a return on investment. An estimated 40% of U.S. startups liquidate all assets with investors losing all of their money. Startups fail, according to the study, because the old management methods, you know, good plan, solid strategy, thorough market research, don't work for startups as they operate with too much uncertainty. So the 10 reasons that startups fail are Insufficient market need is the first one, 42%. Entrepreneurs think, wow, I've got a great idea, but they fail to realise it just because they have a need for this product that um, other people may not have. They run out of cash 29% of the times. They have a poor management team 23% of the times. Competitors beat them 19% of the times. They uh, don't cost it right. 18% of the time, and uh, so they're the major reasons why startups fail. There's seldom one reason why startups fail, but the main reason is that the founders have a big idea and come up with a so-called solution for something that has very little market need. So a successful startup needs three ingredients. They need a relevant market need, a feasibility simple solution and a viable business model. And if you've got those three things, you possibly, providing you really bust your ass, you could have a success. So speaking of startups, how about coffee on the go, bike baristas? Now, if you want to open your own coffee shop and bakery, then be prepared to shell out 
$300,000 for a franchise or $30,000 plus for an okay little coffee shop or maybe 5000 bucks for a really ordinary location and then on top of that you've got rent, marketing, staff and all the rest of the stuff. So it's a, it's a big outlay. And what about competition? Boy, you've got PJs and Tully's and Dunn Brothers and Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf and Starbucks and Dutch Brothers and Pete's and the whole swag of them. And that's not to express, not to mention Nespresso and Keurig and the others that are in every home and every office. So, you know, it'd be pretty reasonable to think, well, there's no space left. Then along comes Wheelies. Launched in 2014, and they've exploded all over the world and currently operate cafes in more than 62 countries. Now, Wheelies was hosted at Y Combinator, that's the accelerator behind Airbnb, Dropbox, Reddit, and a number of others, and has been funded by guys that have created Gmail, Scribed, Zinya, so they've got big backing. Wheelies HQ is in Stockholm, and the boss is 27-year-old Maria de la Croix, the only CEO of a global food company with bright blue hair. And Wheelies is just 10 employees at its office in Stockholm, in China, and in the US. Now, if you're absolutely flat broke, They'll help you get a wheelies cart. Now, this is a fantastic um, cart on the back of a bike, and they look really clean, very cool, uncluttered version of the food truck with espresso machines and juices and sinks and heaps of pastries and all the stuff you can buy at Starbucks, except you pedal it around. And uh, you can customise your carts and add lots of modules to enable you to make things like, you can make crepes and a whole range waffles, a whole range of things on the back of your cart. Now, the total cost of a fully fitted out mobile cafe is only $6,999 with no monthly rent. Now, people from over 60 countries, 60 countries for wheelie carts, and come back month after month to upgrade their carts and restock all their supplies. Now, a really cool thing is because they have street licences, they can park outside the local Starbucks or near a big movie theatre or a sports event or a concert, and they just travel to wherever the crowds are, which is a very cool, disruptive idea. Besides... I think it's great, and I love people with blue hair. With all the rubbish here from Donald Trump, you'd think that America's going to hell in a handbasket, but a majority of the US population now believes the country is in pretty good shape. 3.6 million people were lifted out of poverty in the last 12 months, and now we learn that more kids in the US are graduating from high school than ever before, as the national graduation rate has risen to 83.2%, and that's across all demographic groups. Black students, white students, American Indians, Hispanic, all of them have increased, and Asian Americans, of course. 
So the White House says the increase in graduation rates is a reflection of the progress the country's made to better prepare students for life after high school. So that's fantastic good news. I want you to make sure that you subscribe to my monthly news, my daily newsletter. What am I saying? Every day I send out a newsletter. It goes out to 81,000 executives around the world. So if you're not getting it, you should. It's a 30-second read, very quick to read it. It gives you all the information that you need to help you with your business or just to chat about around the core. So if you don't get it, go to my website and subscribe. I get dozens of people doing that every day. So just go to bobpritchard.com and subscribe. Now, my guest today is Thomas White, who's a co-founder and CEO of C-Suite Network, home to the world's most powerful network of C-Suite leaders. Now, prior to C-Suite Network, Thomas started 10 companies in the fields of technology, publishing, market research, and corporate consulting. He's a really good guy, and I'll be back with Thomas immediately after this short break on Voice America Business Channel. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Where over the last five and a half years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 320 of the world's most interesting business people. We've talked about what they do. And uh, we've tried to get down to what challenges they faced and what it is that makes them tick, that makes them successful and different. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business and it's even more difficult if that business is a startup where the failure rate is somewhere north of 95%. It's therefore very important for corporate executives and entrepreneurs to learn everything possible for those business people who have overcome the obstacles facing businesses today and have achieved success. So that is the aim of this segment, to assist you to become highly successful. Now, Thomas White is a co-founder and CEO of C-Suite Network. Now, for those of you who may not know, and I'm sure there's probably not too many of you, the C-Suite is the part that's got um, 
the nice carpeting and the and the lovely <laughs> green plants. It's where all the executives sit. Um, and the C-Suite Network is the home of the world's most powerful network of C-Suite leaders. Prior to C-Suite Network, Thomas started 10 companies in the fields of technology, publishing, market research, <laughs> research and corporate consulting. He also holds four patents and is the co-author of a book on business process technology. He's the executive producer of a syndicated radio program and he's a professional speaker. And all around, he's a pretty good guy. Even if he did cancel his, his subscription to my <laughs> to my newsletter, which I'll never forgive him for. Thomas, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, which is being heard live around the world. Hey, Bob. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to beg, beg forgiveness and also compliment you on the rigor you have of following your subscribers. Because most people don't pay attention to that. That's the the blood, the heart blood of your business. So pass off to you, and I will never ever unsubscribe from your newsletter ever again. <laughs> okay, I'll forgive you this time. Now, oh, that's good. <laughs> probably the most overused word, but still probably the most important business term that we hear today is disruption. Everybody's familiar with Uber and Airbnb and wheelies and a whole bunch more. And we're also told frequently that legacy companies are set in their ways, they're siloed, they're conservative, they don't have the flexibility or innovation to be the disruptive force that seems to be required today. Firstly, is this really true? And secondly, who are the best innovators and how can companies continue to innovate? Boy, um, lots of questions in that. And I'll just start with standing back with this thing about disruption. Disruption, we think about it like broad markets, like Uber is disrupting the, the, the taxi cab business. But really, disruption is hand, happens in your hometown. Someone changes the way things have always been. And by changing it, they create a competitive advantage for themselves. And if others don't follow this new way of working or, or engaging customers, they'll, they'll miss out. So disruption happens on all scales. It's not just something that, that uh, the big guys have. And actually, disruption is not new. Look look at the disruption that Walmart had yep. with mom-and-pop businesses and, and, and small all around America, right? All yep. around the world. It's Sam Walton was a uh, it was amazing because what he would do, every town he went to, he went to companies that were like his and said, I will learn one new thing from this business to take back to Walmart. So that's to me the essence of of an, of an innovator is that they there's they first they're learners. Yeah. They know that they if they don't continuously learn if they don't continuously treat themselves as a beginner I don't know and I'm going to start from scratch and figure this out to leave all my assumptions on the side they're not going to be able to create something that's disruptive they're not going to be able to create innovation and then your one of your other questions was well how do you, how how do companies innovate they innovate by creating a culture innovation isn't a transaction. Yeah. You don't innovate something. You you basically have a culture of innovation. That means that the people in the organization, vast majority, oriented to how do we do something different. Different here, it means that I'm going to do something that's going to create greater satisfaction with my customers because business isn't complicated. It's simple. I, every business has the same function, which is to produce something of value to a customer that they, that they continue to buy. Yeah. Easy. So, but now, doing that, that's a hard part. Yeah, true. Um, 
creating a culture of innovation um, means that a company has to be prepared for employees to fail, doesn't it? Because everything you try and everything you suggest doesn't necessarily work for a whole range of reasons. So isn't it difficult for corporations to accept that there's going to be failures? I mean, we all know the old 3M thing about sticky pads and things, but in the main, companies are not that keen on failure and employees aren't that keen on failure either because they're worried about their job. Well, you know, so, yes, so human beings are afraid to fail. Yeah, for lots of reasons. Part of us losing my job, part of us looking stupid, part of whatever. I, I, you know, culturally, not just in this culture of this country, but all around the world, people don't want to fail. Yeah. But the, the job of the leader is to encourage failure, but not recurrent failure. That's what I mean by that is if you fail, awesome. What did you learn from that failure? But if you keep failing the same way over and over again, you're in the wrong business. And so leaders have to step back and say, all right, I'm going to provi- provide, create this environment where people feel like, all right, I can fail here. Fail means you did something that didn't have the intended results. I think fail is probably the wrong word. It didn't work out the way you expected. Okay. Uh, One of my business business partners is Jeff Hazlett, and he says, well, nobody died. Yeah. That's right. Could we have done it better? Yes. Did we learn something from it? Yes. And nobody died. So let's keep moving. Let's keep walking. If we get trapped in the, well, why did you do this? And not from the standpoint of learning, but the standpoint of assessing blame, covering our butts. Well, what happens is that all the all the value of the learning is dissipated. Yeah. It's what we're teaching the culture is it's, it, you have to you have to cover yourself. But then, oh, let's, let's 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 go back and learn again. Let's go back and learn again. You know, every great product, technology, whatever, it wasn't right the first time out of the the, the, the bag. You know, it was it took a few iterations to get get it the way that really was disrupted. So, how do you um? I, I guess then innovations are essentially um, going small steps because of Thomas Edison that failed 10,001 times or whatever the story is um, <laughs> wouldn't make it in a in a corporation today. Well, you know, you say that, but, you know, um, Uber's first iterations weren't that great. Uh, let's look at Microsoft. I mean, I have a long history in the computer industry, and Microsoft Windows was horrible. Yeah. Then there was Windows 86. It was still horrible. And only by the time they got to Windows 3 did it become a reasonable product. So companies, if we don't get it out in the world and we don't get real customer feedback that helps us refine the product, we're not going to have a great innovation. The first iPhone wasn't. It was all interesting. Yeah. But that's not what created the, the huge phenomenon. No, they, they continue to innovate. They continue to learn from their customers. They continue to do things that amaze their customers. That's where the disruption came. They created an ecosystem. That ecosystem was really teeny. You remember, the iPhone came out. There were no apps except theirs on the on the iPhone. Yeah. They said, oh, customers want this. So they created this infrastructure. Now there's billions of apps. Okay. But that's that's a process. It didn't just happen uh, the first time out of the box. How much of, how much of um, Apple's success back then, I know it was very innovative, I mean, replacing whatever the first number was, eight different business functions on a one phone, that was pretty innovative, but how much of that success was actually innovation in the way that you positioned something? Um, well, that really that, was let's go back and talk about. Yes, but let's talk about, again, what is innovation? Innovation is in the minds 
and the perceptions of our customers. Yes. Well, we have to tell stories to help frame, contextualize, if you will, something particularly for doing something new. Apple is absolutely brilliant at framing things, at giving us context, at helping us see, hey, you just made a smart decision, and let me tell you why. We all want to make smart decisions that everyone says, oh, wasn't he or she smart? And, and we want to be able to also say, yeah, I'm smart because. And that's where Apple's brains lies. It doesn't mean that their products aren't tremendously innovative, but they create a system of, of narratives and products that create this big disruption. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So when um, somebody in the C-suite's looking out there and he's saying, geez, the um, um, transport business is being disrupted, the hotel business is being disrupted, the cafe business is being disrupted, you've got all these disruptions in all sorts of areas, why don't they sit there and say, Geez, we're in the pharmaceutical bill. We, you know, we're a we're a pharmacy, and if we don't dramatically change the way we do business, we're going to get eaten alive by supermarkets or whatever. Why isn't that part of the um, culture of the C suite? It seems to me that seems C suite um, only innovates when it's really been backed into a corner. You know, I think it's the addiction of the comfort zone. No, oh, this is good. Why, why, why would I want to change this, man? This is great. Well, it's great for now, but real innovators, real leaders know that everything will change. And if I don't begin to create a new world for these changes, this really comfortable, wonderful world I have will not last. But it's, it's hard for people to get out of this, this, this status quo world they're living in because they, it's kind of nice. And, I have to get, and to move into innovation, I have to get uncomfortable. I have to get into places that I don't know the answers to. And most people don't want to do that. Is that a, is that a generational thing? I mean, the people um, that are millennials, do they have a different view to that comfort zone than um, the 35-plus C-suite guys? Or are they just a bit more restless and therefore we don't mind if they lose their job and go some, have to go somewhere else? Most of them. So, first of all, there are there are not a whole lot of millennials in the C-suite today, sure. just because they're that, that's. But even, let's just take some figurehead ones. Mark Zuckerberg. Yep. He's a millennial, right? Yep. Wow. He's, he 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 knows the way the game works. He knows how to innovate. He knows how to move in, into places with disruption because he's always moving to his level of discomfort. Yeah. He knows that. He's he knew that from the beginning. So he's no, you know, the I don't know that's a millennial thing. I think it's, it has to do with with a person's character. And I think that um, you know, look, every generation has this thing about oh, we don't care about the things our parents cared about so much. We we we're more um, we're more virtuous. And not really. We're, at, at that age, yes, I don't have children yet. I don't have these other responsibilities, so I'm virtuous. Now I have I have I have a mortgage, and I have children, and I have tuitions coming up in ten to fifteen years. My worldview changes. The things that become important to me change. And will millennials be different than the last generations? Probably not as much as people think. Right. So are you saying that, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it's what you're saying that innovators are born and they're not made. You know, there's, there's one Zuckerberg in every 10 million people. So are you saying that they're... they're um, these people are born and a company's got to be fortunate enough to have somebody 
come in and say, "Hey, you're doing all this wrong." Um, I don't think so. I don't think so much that, uh, Bob. I think you know, uh, for a company to be disruptive at the level of Facebook, yes. But I go back to what I, how we opened this conversation. Disruption happens at all levels. I can have it in my local community. So it doesn't take a Mark Zuckerberg to do that. It takes someone who can say, ah, here's something we haven't tried. Let's go try it. Let's learn from it and, and innovate in this, in this community around how laundry is done or how lawns are cared for, or whatever it is, how houses are clean. They, they find something that disrupts the system and they take advantage of that and grow it. So I don't need to be Mark Zuckerberg to do that. I may not have designs beyond my local metro area. I'm, I'm happy with that. Mark yeah. Zuckerberg is, and he wants to do something for the world. So that, that's a personal ambition thing, and there are not a lot of people that have the ambition scope that somebody like Zuckerberg has. So what um, at, at what level of a company, let's talk about a reasonable-sized company, at what level of a company does most innovation occur? Um, I'm thinking about um, um, your partner and, and one of my all-time beloved people, um, Jeffrey Hazlett, who, you know, tried to convince Kodak that they, um, you know, making film was pretty stupid when you're in the, <laughs> when you're in the memories business and could not convince the board to, um, to change. So at what level have people got enough clout in general to be able to push through change? You know, that's a really interesting question because I, I was working with Jeff as a consultant when he was trying to bring about this change at Kodak. And so you look at things. So uh, I think it's it's very difficult, very, very difficult to change an existing culture, particularly one that's formed over so many years. And it would require a major change in the culture of a Kodak to be able to, to, to shift this. It takes an extraordinary leader because what happens is you can bring a leader in that has a different cultural orientation. One of two things happens. For most of them, they quickly assimilate the culture of the company they moved into and become just an extension of that. Rarely do you find a leader who can say, okay, yeah, it's all good, but I'm going to change this. Lou Gershner did that with IBM. IBM, for, for, uh, for an awful long time, was, was the big behemoth in the computing industry. In fact, the, the old saying was you couldn't make a mistake buying IBM. Yep. Then IBM made some, got, got in trouble. And sure Gershner came in and said, we're, we're a services company now. So he changed the game, and he came from outside that industry, but he came with an orientation from McKinsey of stepping back and looking at the phenomenon of what's really here, not what we say is here, but what's really here. And then from there, deciding how to create a new culture that's going to be appropriate to the future that he had the vision for. And that's that's extraordinary person to do that. And most people can't have, they don't have the discipline to be able to walk through that. And I don't believe the leadership of Kodak at the time had that. I was um, I was a consultant with Coca-Cola in Atlanta for quite a while. And um, I would suggest something and uh, management would say, okay, we like that. And the in-house marketing people would say, you know, I've recommended that 43 times and it's been knocked back every time. And so now I only recommend things that I know that they're going to accept because otherwise you're bashing your head against a brick wall. So why is that phenomena that they will take advice from an outside consultant? I've heard it from other people as well, not just my experience. No, but, I, I you know, yeah, I was a corporate consultant, so I, I had the same same experience, right? Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, 
Okay. <laughs> it happens in a family. So, you know, um, I could tell a family member, you know, I think this is going on with you. Whatever. Who are you? You're, you're just my brother, my father, whatever. They go, they go talk to a quote expert. They, they say the exact words. Oh, my God. I just discovered this. And you've been talking about it for years. Same yeah. thing happens in companies. You know, we, for lots of reasons, we get tone deaf for the people around us. Some of us, like, I don't want you to be better than me. If you're a consultant, you're not part of my culture. Yeah. You're not one of my competitors, my, my, my position competitors. I'm not going to, you're not going to take my job away from me as a consultant. But if you're smarter than me inside the culture, you might. So there's, there's this kind of tribal stuff that goes on inside of humans. We're still, you know, we're tribal as a, as a human species. And we, we get caught up in this kind of thing. And we don't want to, you know, have somebody be successful around us because it might mean we're less successful. And all the other emotional phenomena go along with that. But again, you bring in a consultant who's, hey, a good idea. Great idea. Well, that's what happens. Because, again, they're not, they're not there to take my job. They're there to help me be more successful. Going back to families, Fred, I mean, we, we all accept that families are usually very dysfunctional. <laughs> you, can't get to pick, you can't get to pick your family members. But corporations are supposed to not be dysfunctional, and you can pick the people that come into the team, and presumably you pick them not only on talent but also on personality and their ability to fit the corporate culture. So... I don't quite understand why that um, um, dysfunction exists, and why doesn't the why well, doesn't the C-suite I, I do something I, I about it? Well, the C-suite isn't just uh, you know it's not like a this thing called a C-suite. It's made up of individuals, and so as individuals, we do some things well and some things not so good. I had a very long-term consulting gig in my company that I owned with one of the major banks. Right. And we, we, this was like a nine-month leadership program. Everybody from the CEO out, seven levels of leadership were in this. And um, after every program, and these were nine-month programs, we'd have a wrap-up session. And somewhere between 3 and 5% of the people in the program would say, I realize I don't belong here. Jeez. But we, we all, we, 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 and that was good. In fact, the, the, the senior VP of HR said, thank you. Because we help people who weren't best suited for that company leave on their own power, their own choice. The company didn't have to fire them. Because we all go into companies, it's like, it's like dating. You put your best foot forward when you're trying to recruit an employee? Of course. Do they put their best foot forward? Of course. Do, do, do we make mistakes? Of course. Just like we do with having 50% of the marriages go, go, go belly up. Why would it be any different in our organizations? Because we're, we're, we're courting each other. We're trying to get something from each other, and we see a glimpse or a lot of, of the true self, but not the operational self, not the self that shows up every day when they're sick sometimes and they're happy sometimes and whatever. So I think as humans, we have to realize we're in the long, the long thing, and sometimes we get the wrong people, and our job is to get the, and help those people not be there anymore. That's what we can really do. Okay. Let's, you you mentioned banks. Banks are one of my... Mm-hmm. Banks are one of my hobby horses because if ever an organize, if, if ever an industry needs to be totally disrupted, it's banks, and it's happening. They're, they're getting attacked on two fronts. The first one is the um, establishment of all sorts of fintech organisations that are, are online and much more efficient and closer to the customer and and you know and don't have acres and acres and acres of foyers with nobody walking through them. So that's the first disruption is that they're 
their source of funds is getting disrupted because it's going to other places. And the second one I think that's going to really shut the door on them is blockchain. Um, I think that's going to really fuck up the banks. So why are banks still don't seem to be changing much? Why, why are they sort of... Everybody hates them. There's not a, an organisation, not an industry in the world that is less popular than banks. And yet nothing seems to change and they must be seeing this impending doom um, right on their doorstep. What's stopping them? Is, is banking just such a conservative industry that they don't see the wood for the trees? Again, I think it's this comfort zone issue, Bob. You know, I, I was just talking to an executive of one of the banks, same bank I used to consult with now, somebody that we're working on um, a partnership with. And they, their, their default statement is, well, we have to do this because of regulations. And I know it's not true. Yeah. That's what their mindset is. So, so, so the companies that are innovating are stepping back and looking anew at what the regulatory environment really needs to them. And, you know, one of the greatest sins, difficulties of innovation is that's how we've always done it here. Yes. Yep. Sure. And as soon as I hear that, like, okay, run, run, <laughs> run away from that person. <laughs> because, because that's, that is, it's going to kill anything changing. And, and I see that a lot in the financial services business. And I think people are well-intentioned, but that particular old statement, that's how we, we have to do it for regulation. Probably may be true sometimes, but not as many times as they say. And that mindset Everybody doesn't have it. And the people that don't have it, the ones that are going to create an innovation. They're not going to do things illegal. They're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to still be a bank or whatever the deal is. But they realize I can do things differently and still be able to live as a bank. Yeah. Well, but providing banking services anyway. Yeah. Um, well, well, and I mean, I don't mean bank in the, in the traditional sense of, of the brick and mortar place. I mean, providing financial services to people that they value. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Disruption's usually got a negative connotation, but um, obviously, as there's a lot of examples of how it can be a great business tool and and revolutionise a, a whole industry, providing um, benefits for every stakeholder. So, how does one become a good disruptor? Does it have to be somebody from outside? Does it have to be a an aggressive, arrogant? <laughs> person like Kalanak. Well, you know, this, this problem, one of the early writers about this was Clayton Christensen in the Innovators, Innovators Dilemma. Right. And he talks about that, right? How difficult it was for companies like digital and other digital equipment and others to innovate because, it's, again, we have a culture, same problem Kodak had, and its culture says this is how we do things here. And it's difficult to take a new initiative and create that new initiative inside of that corporate structure. So there's some clever things people can do. They can set up a separate company. It's got its own money. It's got its own processes. It's got its own culture. And the idea is for that group to create something new and innovative that the company then can do what they do with. It's still difficult for the leaders of that company because they are still mostly in the mindset of how things have always been here. But I just getting back to what we talked about, it's very, very difficult to change a culture. It's doable. But it takes someone having the rigor to say, wait, Ah, that, that's, that's just what we believe. That's not true. That's just what we believe. And that's, that's, uh, so almost everything in a culture is based upon what somebody believes rather than what some, that is something that's absolutely true. How, how much is the pressure from um, um, 
stock market and shareholders play in this because, I mean, you look yesterday, um, Amazon, a slight dip in profit and their shares go and, um, you know, you'd have to be sitting And that's an innovative company that everybody expects to be innovative. Well, here's the thing. It only matters if it changes the behavior of the leadership. Right. So will that, will, will that stock market dip change Jeff Bezos' uh, behavior? Probably not. No. He's fairly secure, I would so think. That, <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, well, here's the thing. So if it doesn't change the, the, the behavior of the company and they can stay true to course and not be driven by the ups and downs of the stock, then it's not a problem. It only becomes a problem when the company's trying to please the marketplace and keep the stock price up because it's never going to always be up. It's going to be up. It's going to be down. That's always true with, with any stock. But then that's that would it seems to me that watching that share price every three months is what's led to um, a, putting brakes on this economy because people won't take long term views, and that the number of CEOs that are willing to um, um, disrupt, if you like, would be one in a thousand probably, or even greater odds than that. And you know, it, it, you have to have. Someone who has got so certain of themselves, not that they have the right answers, but certain that they can figure it out yep. with the right people around to be willing to, to deal with a 10%, 20%, 30% slide in their stock prices. They, they, they say, no, I, I know I'm doing the right thing. And they can bring their board along to support them to doing that. In case of Bezos, that's not such a problem because he owns such a large position, just like sure. Zuckerberg. But even the people who don't have such large positions, you don't need a large, you just need your board with you. If your yeah. board's with you and you can show them why this is a good thing, then that's what you need to do and, and not worry about any more of the quarterly stock price. Do you need to continue to add value over time? Of course, but you, but you don't need to do it every quarter. Sure. We all know about um, the Ubers and the Airbnbs and wheelies and a few others, um, but who, who are other Disruptors, disruptors that are really thinking outside the box. What, what are the biggest thinking outside the box examples that come to mind for you? Well, you know, I think you were talking about Netflix. Look, look what Netflix, Netflix. Has, has created. Yeah, Netflix. You know, Netflix, Netflix started out as a as a company that was sending you CD or DVDs to your home. Yep, I remember. Think about that. It was that was their business model, and today they're they're a major network. They're a major producer. They're creating, they, they, exactly, the network. I mean, they are not only a distributor of content; they're a creator of content. That's a disruption. Absolutely. And, and so, and they did that as an evolution of their of their business model. Sending DVDs to my house was a disruption to the industry called the blockbusters of the world. Yep. Right. That disrupted that. That disrupted that business. Yep. But the real disruption happened later when it was I could deliver that movie to you digitally on your computer or your through the internet. Yeah. And that was the real disruption. But that wasn't enough. They kept it oh, but now we need to have some content that's ours. Great, they then they disrupted again. So to me it's they're a great example of continuous disruption. Yes, you're right. That that's a fantastic example. Um and continuously innovating. You know, they're they're all the time, yeah. As well as running a, an enormously successful business in on many continents. Um, exactly. Okay, so we know that we need to constantly innovate, and probably in most industries that have been that are so-called legacy industries, we need to disrupt them. So, what's the next step to take a company up to the next level? 
Well, from innovation to disruption, well, again, let's look at what disruption is. Disruption is that I have a business that is doing, is delivering a promise to a customer in a different way. A different way could be new technology, a different way could be a new business model, a different way could be new service levels, whatever. So, so everyone is, all, is in a continuous review. Am I doing something? It's changing the way the customers can do business to receive this good or service in a positive way. And can I make money at it? And, that, and that's, that's, that's something we do once a year. We do this every quarter. How are we doing? How are we innovating? How, how, are, are we on the path to disruption? If we're not, why not? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of companies um, think they're being innovative if they encourage employees to find ways they can improve and uh, somebody finds a faster way to screw a bolt on a widget. Or, well, yeah, and, that's, and, and all of us read a separate yarn and say, so what? Yeah, that's not innovative at all. That's just improving the process, isn't it? Right. All righty. So I reckon we've probably gone about 1% of the disruption um, <laughs> revolution. What are the next two or three um, industries that you think are going to get disrupted, excepting banks? I got a thing about banks. Sooner they go, the I can see that. <laughs> well, financial, financial services is, is, in, is in. Is I think you're right. It's a yeah. it's a place for disruption. Um, I think we're going to see even greater disruptions with retail. I think we're going to see a funny thing happening. So look at Amazon. Amazon is going to open 2,000 brick-and-mortar outlets. Yeah, these little retail yeah, stores. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, so that's this, very so this cool. Is a, this is a new disruption, right? So this, so the whole food service, food delivery, it's, it's going to be a huge disruption in this space. And the people at are at risk are the normal supermarkets, right? They're going to, they're going to have some challenges here. So, you know, transportation is going to continue to evolve. You know, what happens when we have driverless cars? Yeah. We've only seen the tip of the iceberg of this in this disruption. It's, it's going to be amazing. And hyperloop, right? So, so and, and we're going to disruptions. The disruptions that are going to happen because we have high capacity batteries. Yeah, huge disruptions, and I, I have no idea what this is going to be yet. Yep. So that's just a, a few examples of things that, that we're going to see. Just to, I'm just going to have the first, last word and finish this off. I went to a. Um, a talk from Singularity University and was really interesting because they said um, we are only in 1% along the um, um, change revolution, the digital revolution, 1%. And in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to go to the next 99%. So disruption, in if you multiply that out in 15 years' time, will be 3,000 times faster than it is now. And that is something... To bear in mind, it is going to be frightening. So, buckle your seatbelts. Bob, you today. So, I'm listening to this broadcast and I'm thinking, I really need to change the way I do business if I want to continue to be successful. So, how can you, Thomas White, help them to achieve that? They contact you and... You know, join the C-Suite Network. And our C-Suite Network is a great place for business leaders to come together to learn and be supported in being successful during a disruptive environment. C-Suite-Network.com, and we'd love to have you come join us. Okay. Thomas, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can connect with Thomas at C-Suite. Let's see, apostrophe, S-U-I-T-E. A hyphen. 
hyphen. See hyphen sweet. See hyphen. Yep. I, I meant hyphen <laughs> sweet. Or con- connect with him on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Plus, or on email. And if you wanted to contact me, I can put you in touch. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. That's great talking. Absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week, we're broadcasting from the shores of Sydney Harbour. I'm sitting here looking out across the harbour. I'm here for three or four days to work with um, a couple of clients. It's an absolutely glorious day. The harbour's sparkling. It's a lovely place to be. I mean, it's not Hollywood Boulevard, but it's pretty good. Now, in a country with 40% of the population are non-religious, comes heaven-sent pizzas. Domino's Pizza and Flirty have launched the first commercial drone delivery service in the world with a demonstration of pizza delivery by drone in Auckland, New Zealand. Now, this is going to be extended to actual deliveries to consumers next month. The uh, Civil Aviation Rules Part 101, it's the final step in Flirty's approval process and the demonstrations this week were witnessed by the New Zealand Civil Civil Aviation Authority and the Transport Minister. So, you know, it doesn't add up when you think about it. It doesn't add up to deliver a two-kilogram package in a two-tonne truck or on a bike. Uh, So research into different delivery methods led them to Flirty, led Domino's to Flirty. And Flirty's the premier independent drone delivery service in the world, and they're helping businesses unlock new markets and drive sales and pioneer instant deliveries and replace the uh, costly and cumbersome logistics network. It's more disruption. Now, drones also allow extension of the delivery area by removing barriers such as traffic and access and convoluted roadway directions and offer a much faster, safer delivery option, which enables delivery to a much bigger catchment area and it reaches urban customers much quicker. There's nothing worse than sitting down watching Monday Night Football and uh, having to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for a pizza. So you'll be able to push a button on your smartphone and have Domino's deliver by drone to your home. Now, the drones fly autonomously at a height of 60 metres. The uh, customer's notified on the phone as the delivery's approaching and the drone just delivers the package down to you. And there's an inbuilt cutting mechanism which kicks in if someone tries to pull down the drone (laughs) and the drone can just beat it. It's unlikely that there'll be any extra charge for drone delivery as they want this delivery mechanism to continue after the 
initial loyalty and novelty has worn off. The drone flights, flights will be automated, but a human will be nearby to supervise. They're planning to roll it out globally throughout six other markets initially, Australia, Belgium, France, the Netherlands, Japan and Germany, but US customers hoping for a Domino's pizza to drop out of the sky into their front yard or perhaps use the drones as skeet shooting. Shouldn't get too worked up as Domino's in New Zealand actually operates totally separately from the US chain. Now, Domino's this, uh, actually this spring began using a robotic cart that wheels along sidewalks in the UK to make deliveries, and that seems to have been very successful. So a little slice of heaven coming to your home in the near future. So now if only Domino's could be as creative with their pizzas as they are with their delivery. Now that would be novel. Mark Zuckerberg has spoken about Facebook's impending move towards video, done it quite often. And over a couple of years ago, uh, Zuckerberg said that their challenge was to prepare the social network for more rich video formats on people's feeds, stating that in five years' time, the majority of Facebook will be video. His predictions have proved to be correct, and more than 650 million users are now watching Facebook videos every day. 650 million people watching Facebook videos every day and over 100 million hours of video per day with a total of 8 billion views every 24 hours. That's extraordinary growth. So this is up from just 4 billion a year ago and 50% of Facebook users in the US now watch at least one video every single day. Now, here are four reasons why Facebook will be overwhelmingly videos. The first one is more consumption. Globally, user-posted videos on Facebook increased by 75% in the last year. In the United States, the increase was a staggering 94% just in 12 months. Hootsuite, which, as you know, is the leading um, social media dashboard, reports that the amount of videos shared in the newsfeed has increased by 360% year on year for the past three years. That's real growth. 50% of Facebook users in the US now watch one video a day. And, that, and now it's become so cheap. And it, not only cheap, but easy to produce high-quality mobile video. And mobile viewing has spiked to account for 65% of all Facebook video views. So it's consumer demand that's driving the shift to more videos. Secondly, Facebook's exploration of new video formats, <coughs> excuse me, Zuckerberg's commitment to virtual reality, the acquisition of Oculus, both of those things have got to pay big dividends. And Facebook Social's VR team has focused on integrating Oculus technology into Facebook's web platform. So that's going to set the stage for a big increase. 
viewers spent three times longer watching live video on Facebook over pre-recorded content, and that's prompted Facebook to further emphasise live by adding new features to the live mobile app and making live videos more likely to appear on users' news feeds. Thirdly, general trends are towards video content. According to Cisco, video will account for 80% of global internet traffic in three years' time. So 80% of all global internet traffic in three years' time will be video, and nearly a million minutes of video will be transmitted every second. God, that's amazing. The popularity of video content is also apparent on Snapchat, where the number of daily video users is unbelievable. It's grown from 8 billion to 10 billion in the last three months. These numbers suggest that Facebook's move towards becoming a primarily video-orientated platform are spot on. Now, major content creators are also moving towards video. Marketers, brands, ad agencies, they've all shifted their content focus towards video. According to HubSpot, putting a video in an email increases the click-through rate by up to 300%. So putting a video in an email increases the click-through rate by up to 300%. A video for a product also increases users' likelihood of purchasing that product by 64%. So with so many content creators, internet users and social media platforms treating video production and viewing as a focal point for online consumption, Zuckerberg again seems to be pretty spot on with his five-year vision of a network dominated by video. In fact, not only seems likely, but it seems inevitable. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enrol for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds a day to read. It's very different every day. So you get it in the morning. A quick 30-second skim through and you've got something to talk about over the water cooler or it could benefit you in your business during the day. So go to bobpritchard.com and make sure you enrol for my newsletter. And remember, if you're not living right on the edge, if you're not pushing the envelope as hard as you can push it, then you're just taking up too much space. Get out of the road and let somebody else who wants to achieve get through. You know, it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. So it's goodbye to Sydney. I um, will be back in Los Angeles next Tuesday evening because it's election day and I know that you want to get out and vote early so you can listen to me. So next week I'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard and in the meanwhile continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.